We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. John chapter 20, verse 1 through 31. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven to them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, when the disciples were inside again, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe in Jesus, is, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, if you're a visitor, let me just say welcome on behalf of the pastors and the members here at Emmaus Church. My name's Sam. Um, I'm one of the pastors, and we are very glad you're here. Um, if you are a visitor, one thing that you need to know is that we would love to trade a coffee mug for your information. So there's a, a connect table out front. That's where you can get connected, and we can find out a little bit more information about you and uh, what, brought, what brought you here to Emmaus and uh, how we can serve you. And in return, you get a, a free coffee mug. So, um, hey, I have a, a ton of content to cover. So if it's all right with you guys, I want to skip the announcements and uh, just jump into prayer. So would you guys pray with me? Father God, on this Sunday following our national holiday of Thanksgiving, we are thankful for this text. We are thankful for the resurrection of Jesus. We are thankful for your church and the fellowship of our spiritual family. And Father, coming off of this holiday with eyes set on Christmas and time with extended blood relatives, Father, many of us ache with sadness over our family members who do not know you and are not walking with you. Keep us consistent in holding forth your gospel. Father, protect us from despair. May we continually be salt and light and 
And Father, may it be, may we as a congregation celebrate together your saving work in our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. We long for that. Father, we ache for that. And now, Father, we ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit who is indwelling us and comforts us and teaches us. May he protect us from the sin of grieving him by taking his inspired word lightly. May he make us hungry for this word. Lord, give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus in these words. Water the heart of those who hear thy word that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. We ask for all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The word catastrophe, especially in literature, carries with it this idea of a sudden and unexpected uh, dip in the narrative. It's a disaster, a drastic drop-off in the story. So the catastrophe is an all-too-common experience, not just in literature, but, but in our own lives. We experience the catastrophe, right? A sudden and unexpected death in the family. That's a catastrophe. My, can you hear me? Okay. Medical diagnosis that makes your stomach drop. The discovery of betrayal from someone you love and trust. We're all well acquainted with the catastrophe, but J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the creator of the fantasy world Middle Earth and the author of the Lord of the Rings novels, he, he coined an antonym to the catastrophe. It's the exact opposite of the catastrophe. He calls it the eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophe is the sudden and unexpected turn of sorrowful tides. The punctuated uptick in the storyline that begins the ever after, the happy ever after. And in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings novels, there are several eucatastrophes that he writes for his characters. But my favorite eucatastrophe is the one that he writes for his character, Sam. And not just because of the name. This is a beautiful eucatastrophe. Because after masterfully articulating catastrophe after catastrophe over the scope of three novels, you as the reader, even though you know how the story is going to end, you still are ready to curl up in a ball and hide forever. The feeling of despair as Frodo and Sam are, they're on the the side of Mount Doom and they're settling in to die next to one another. That feeling of despair is nearly overwhelming. And then it happens. The eucatastrophe happens. Sam wakes up, and he's greeted by Gandalf, his friend and sage, the the man he saw die two novels prior and one of Tolkien's most tragic catastrophes. Gandalf is right there in the flesh, and he greets him, and he informs Sam that, quote, a great shadow has passed with a laugh that sounded like, quote, music or like water in a parched land. Sam's eucatastrophe is epitomized in the question that he asks that bubbles up from sheer, bewildered, delight, and joy. He asks the question, is everything sad going to come untrue? That is the question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Well, today, we read about the world's greatest eucatastrophe, a real eucatastrophe, 
the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to begin our time by briefly outlining the three major scenes in this resurrection account, and then I want to spend some time explaining the theological importance of the resurrection. I want to connect the resurrection with some really important doctrines and their relevance on the Christian life, and then I'll conclude with a simple charge. Let me just say, before we get in, I'm, I'm not at all concerned this morning with giving an account of how the four Gospels resurrection accounts uh, harmonize. They do harmonize. You need to know that. And if you're curious, I can point you to some resources that help show how they do harmonize. But each of the Gospel writers have reasons for, for articulating the, the resurrection account um, that they articulate. And John tells us, At the end of this chapter, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has reasons for including the details he includes, and he has reasons for excluding the details that he excludes. So we want to let John speak to us this morning. So with that said, let's look at this first scene of this resurrection account, and it's the disciples at the tomb. Read with me. Look at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John is sharing his testimony with us this morning. He's the first disciple, in other words, who believes in the resurrection, He sees the linen cloth lying there. And this for John is where all of the pieces sort of snap into place. He says, oh, this is is what the scriptures were talking about. He must rise from the dead. This is where all of the pieces fit together for John. Now, as we read these words, how can we not contrast this description of Jesus' cloths lying there with John chapter 1144 and the raising of Lazarus? You remember it? It says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. Evidently, there is something altogether different about Jesus' resurrection. At the raising of Lazarus, Jesus demonstrates his authority over death, but the man he he raises from the dead is still dead in his trespasses, and he's going to die again. Lazarus will die again physically, the the only person who dies twice, poor fellow. um, But the man he raises is still dead. He still has his his funeral garments on. Not so with Jesus' resurrection. Those garments don't touch his glorified flesh. 
He is unbound by them. Let's read on. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now this Mary, Mary Magdalene, is different from Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, whom we saw anointing Jesus's feet in John chapter 13. So they're, they're different Marys, but their devotion to Christ resemble one another. Mary, Mary Magdalene, hasn't come to understand at this point what John has come to understand, that Jesus' body is missing because he's been resurrected. She doesn't know that yet. So she is still grieving over the death of Jesus. But her sadness, her sadness is absolutely beautiful. You get an idea of how overwhelmed she is with sorrow and the fact that she's greeted by two angels who ask her why she's crying, and she simply says, because... They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where he is. That typically doesn't happen when when people in the New Testament are greeted with angelic beings. They typically cower with fear. But Mary is so overcome with sadness that she lacks the awareness of what's actually happening. She's not even putting together, these are angels that I'm talking to. She's just so overwhelmed. And this is a picture of her devotion that she had for Jesus. The body of her Lord is gone, and she doesn't know where it is. She's come to the tomb with this one final demonstration of her devotion to Christ to minister to his body, and it's gone. It's gone. First, she has to watch him die by crucifixion. That's a catastrophe. Then she comes, and the body is missing. Catastrophe. And then Mary gets her you catastrophe. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. He says her name. He says her name. That's it. She says, I know that voice. (laughs) With only one word, the sound of his voice was like music or like water in a parched land. As the sound of his voice sunk into her ear, it was like light flooding a dark room. Like the light of his presence instantly flooded the darkness of that moment of despair and isolation, and Mary experienced the ecstasy of being shot through with sudden joy. And I doubt her weeping stopped. I suspect it doubled with intensity. Jesus had said back in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And here we see that intimate dynamic unfold. 
right in front of us, a lost and worried and despairing sheep, hears the familiar voice of her loving good shepherd. Would you guys marvel with me at the compassion of our Lord? Remember what Pastor John said, Pastor Josh said last week about the crucifixion? He said that every single moment in that event was sovereignly orchestrated by God for his purposes. And that is true, not just of the crucifixion, but in everything, including this interaction that we're looking at right now. This all-knowing, omniscient son of God knew that Mary was going to be there with Peter and John. He knew that. He knew that Peter and John would leave. And he knew that Mary would stay frozen with grief. Doubtless, he saw all three of them at the tomb from a distance, and he waited for Peter and John to leave so that he could be alone with Mary. He had prepared this moment, this this honor, this first of his resurrection appearances. He had prepared this moment for Mary. He had prepared this eucatastrophe for her. And Jesus has to say to her, do not cling to me because... She was trying to cling to him (laughs) because she surely lunged toward him to, as my son would say, squeeze the stuffing out of him. Now, some throughout church history have speculated that Jesus' command not to cling to him was a rebuke for unseemly behavior, but I strongly disagree with that interpretation. Self-debasing, wholehearted devotion to Christ is never scorned by him. Go back to John chapter 13 and and the anointing of his feet by Mary, the sister of Lazarus, for proof of that. No, Jesus always loves that kind of overwhelming affection. Rather, he tells her not to cling to him because it's not time to. It's simply not time to. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. He's saying, Mary, I know, I know. But listen, I'm not completely finished with what I came here to do yet. But I'm so close. The tide has been turned. Death's death blow has been dealt, but soon I'll have to ascend back to the Father so I can fulfill all of these promises I've made to you. So for now, Mary, go. Go to my brothers and tell them that the tide has turned. He says, go to my brothers, as if to reiterate that despite what his scattered sheep may be worrying about, in light of the fact that they abandoned him, just as he said they would, he still loves them. He tells them to announce, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The glory of this phrase with just a few words, Jesus announces their familial relation to God. He, the eternal son of God, has in his life, death, and resurrection made them sons as well. The father that he has for all eternity past called father is now in him, their father too. Beautiful. All right, let's look at the second scene. We just looked at the disciples at the tomb. Now we're looking at scene number two, Jesus commissioning his disciples. Look at verse 19 with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, setting aside the curious nature of of Jesus' resurrected body, which apparently has the ability to walk through walls, but is nevertheless solid and able to eat and digest fish, which we'll see next week. Very strange. But setting all of that aside, I want you to notice the tight connection here between the peace of Jesus, the mission of the disciples, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the forgiveness of sins. All four of these things are held closely together. The peace of Jesus, the mission of the disciples, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the pronouncement to forgive sins. We see Jesus breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit. What's happening here? Well, at least this. Jesus breathes on them at least in part to demonstrate that he has authority along with the Father to send the Holy Spirit to them. He he breathes the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So he's at least saying that much. He's assuring them that he has the authority to actually fulfill what what he's promised them. But does this passage mean that the disciples in this moment receive the Holy Spirit? empower to indwell them and empower them to to live out this mission? Well, the answer has to be no for a couple of really, really important reasons. First of all, throughout chapters 13 through 17, Jesus has linked the arrival of the Holy Spirit with his ascension to the Father. He says the Holy Spirit can't come until he completes his work and descends to heaven. That's when he's going to send the Spirit to apply all of the work that he's accomplished. Okay, so, so he's been very clear about, it, uh, about that un- uh, up, until that, uh, up until this point. So um, it can't be that they're receiving the Holy Spirit and power to indwell them because he hasn't ascended to the Father yet. But second, I want you to notice right here in this passage how Jesus associates their reception of the Holy Spirit with A, they're being sent out on mission, and B, people having their sins forgiven. Where do we see those two things happen? We see those two things happen when we flip the pages of our Bible over to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends on them at Pentecost, they receive the Holy Spirit in power, and then Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved. That's when these things happen. 3,000 people have their sins forgiven. So this little episode right here in John chapter 20 is a kind of parable of what's to come. He's he's letting them know what they can expect some 50 days from now when he has ascended to the Father. Jesus is telling his disciples what they can expect and what he intends to do through them. The mission that he was sent by the Father and anointed by the Spirit to perform is going to be further proclaimed by his blood-bought, Spirit-anointed people. And this is why... This is why I can say from this pulpit with all the authority of God's word, if you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, your sins are forgiven. If you don't, they aren't. 
I can say that without a shadow of doubt in my mind. If you do not trust in this gospel, your sins are not forgiven. My authority as a disciple of Jesus Christ is one of pronouncing what is the case. Pronouncing what is the case in light of the proclamation of the gospel. I can't arbitrarily decide whose sins are forgiven and whose aren't. That, that authority is not being given over to the disciples right now. They're given, over to, they're given the authority to pronounce what is the case, just like in Matthew chapter 16 and 18, when they're given the keys to the kingdom, and they're told, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will have been loosed in heaven. They're given the authority to pronounce what is the case. No human or group of humans on the planet has the authority to, to just arbitrarily decide whose sins are forgiven. But we can say that anyone who truly trusts in the message of Christ's church, his people, is forgiven. And anyone who doesn't, isn't. We're saying, you want to know where you can find forgiveness of sins? Go to the only institution on the planet that has anything to say about that. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Right? So this is the mission of the disciples. He, Jesus, who was sent by the Father and anointed by the Spirit to perform all of this work, is now going to send his disciples. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to proclaim this gospel. And as they do, this mission of the Trinity is extended. God is continuing to save people through the proclamation of his people. It's incredible. All right, let's look at this third and final scene of Jesus rebuking unbelief. We looked at the disciples at the tomb, Jesus commissioning his disciples, and now Jesus rebukes unbelief. Look at verse 24 with me. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This word from Jesus is desperately needed today, brothers and sisters. Here we see, we see Thomas the, the realist, right? The one who's just, he's just wired to be skeptical. He's just wired to not be gullible. The point I want to bring out from this text is very simple. Doubt in Jesus is not something to wink at. Now, I stress this because I'm afraid that in our day, in an effort to be authentic and transparent, we have turned doubt into a virtue, like it's something to brag about. But we have to take our cues from Scripture and, and describe our experiences and interpret our experiences the way that Scripture interprets them. And scripture never, ever, ever celebrates doubt. You will never see doubt celebrated in scriptures. Now, a certain delicacy is required here, right? Because for one thing, not all doubt is created equal, right? I mean, just, just look at this passage. 
There is a big difference between sorrowful Mary Magdalene who struggles to put the pieces together and doubting Thomas who announces his skepticism with confidence. There's a big difference between the two. Also, as I've explained from this pulpit and many times over in my community group, we always want to strive to have the kind of environment where sins and struggles and doubts and fears are shared freely without the fear of condemnation or shame. God forbid I ever catch wind of gasps from horrified and shocked and disgusted members who hear the confession of other believers, for example. But it is flat wrong to conclude that the freedom to confess sins and struggles equates to the celebration of sins and struggles. It is right and healthy for our environment to be simultaneously hospitable to the confession of sin and absolutely inhospitable to the practice of sin. We want to be hospitable to the confession of sin and totally inhospitable to the persistent practice of sin. When a real, when real confession of unbelief and doubt flourishes in a community, the persistence of unbelief and doubt flounders. So the, the, the point is not how frequently you talk about your doubt. If you experience doubt, you should be talking about it a lot. The point is, how are you talking about it? Is it something to brag about? Or is it a confession? Are you asking for your brothers and sisters to help drag it out of your heart and put it to death? That's how we should be talking about our doubt. Now the question is, when you're confronted with sinfully indulging in doubt, how do you respond? When you're confronted with sinfully indulging in your doubt, how should you respond? And in this text, we we take our cues from Thomas. Thomas responds rightly. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, he worships Jesus. Now, by the way, this one's for free. It's not in my sermon manuscript, but if you're looking for a text to take your Jehovah's Witness friends to and their own so-called New World Translation Bible, this is the text to take it to, okay? They've, they've tried to take all the divinity of Jesus out of their Bibles, but for some reason, they keep on missing this one in their translation. So go to John chapter 20, verse 28, and uh, you can have that conversation with them. So Thomas worships Jesus, and Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed, blessed are those that, uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and me. <laughs> We have not seen the body of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, but yet we believe and Jesus calls us blessed. Though you have not seen him, Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is us. And Jesus calls us blessed. All right, now with the remainder of our time, I'd like to drive home some of the theological significance of the resurrection. I want to connect the resurrection with five very important doctrines, and I want you to see their relevance on the Christian life. The resurrection makes, makes stuff happen in Christian theology. Number one, 
the resurrection and the redemption from the fall. The resurrection and redemption from the fall. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All of humanity, in other words, has been plunged into the muck and mire and mud of death in Adam. To wade through this thick sludge and climb out on the other side is impossible. Humanity is stuck and closed and swallowed whole by death. This is what Adam's sin brought us. He dragged humanity into the grave. But in the gospel... In the gospel, the second Adam plunged headlong into this miry pit. He plunged so deep into death that for three days, the surface lay still, undisturbed, quietly boasting in victory. But then on the first Easter morning, for the first time in human history, but not the last, the surface broke and Jesus, the second Adam, blasted out of death's clutches, carrying with him a new humanity, the spoils of victory. He followed humanity into death, and he came out on the other side holding a new humanity, spoils of victory. On that Easter morning, death's death blow was dealt, and this is the redemption from the fall. Christ redeems a new humanity for himself in the resurrection. Point number two, the resurrection and justification. It is no throwaway line for Paul to say that Christ was, quote, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See the vindication of the son's righteousness in his resurrection. This is how justification works. In his death, Jesus offers up a sacrifice to God on our behalf. And he himself is that sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that he offers up to God on our behalf. He is the pure sacrifice who was actively obedient to God. He was faithful where Adam and Israel and you and I are unfaithful. So that's his active obedience. And he was passively obedient as well. He received all of the suffering that that the uh, effects of the curse brought about, including that final suffering of the condemnation for sin. So that is the offering that Jesus offers up. It is his perfect obedience in life and in death. That's that's his sacrifice. And he takes that offering of himself and he lays it up on a cross-shaped altar. And he says, this is my body broken for my people. This is my blood shed for my people. And then he dies. And then the cosmos and all of the angelic hosts hold their breath. Will this offering be acceptable? Will this death satisfy the wrath owed? Will this righteous life offer up eternal life to those who trust in him? And in the resurrection, in the resurrection, the father says absolutely and emphatically, yes. He says, I gladly accept this sacrificial offering. He says, all who are in this, my beloved son, have the righteous requirements of the law satisfied. He says, all who are in this, my beloved son, have the penalty for sin paid. He says, all who are in this, my beloved son, are accounted 
not guilty and justified and righteous. So don't underestimate the significance of the resurrection and your justification, Christian. Without the resurrection, listen, without the resurrection, the cross of Christ is at worst just another example of Roman crucifixion, and at best, it's an uncertainty, a big question mark. Without the resurrection, we have no hope that our sins are actually forgiven on account of the death of Christ. Nothing to assure us that his sacrifice on our behalf is enough and acceptable. And if Christ has not been raised, says Paul to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But in the resurrection, God the Father has shouted a word of assurance. And that word echoes throughout all time and human history. He says, justification is surely, objectively, definitively offered in this God-man, Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, our justification is solidified. Point number three, the resurrection and reconciliation. This is the peace that Jesus offers us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by faith, by, or by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? This is what our new status as justified means for us. It means reconciliation and peace with God. The sin that, the sin that stood between us and God has been removed. Every reason for enmity between us and God has been undermined. And we now have peace and resurrection and the resurrection assures us of this. Think, let, me, let me give you an example. Think about Luke's account of the crucifixion when he writes, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this, he breathed his last. The curtain, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy presence of God from the unholy presence of man was torn in the death of Christ. But who among us would dare to walk through it if it be not for Jesus, our forerunner? Who among us would say, okay, now that the, now that the curtain's torn, I'm just going to walk on through. Would we not be like John and just sort of timidly peek in? But in the resurrection, Jesus takes us by the hand. He, he stomps out of death. He stomps out of the grave. He takes us by the hand. And with quick and determined pace, he walks us into the throne room of grace and places our hand into God the Father's hand who looks down at us with eyes full of joy. That's what resurrection means. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, says the author of Hebrews, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the re reconciliation guaranteed in the resurrection. We have peace with God. Fourth, the resurrection and union with Christ. 
the resurrection and union with Christ. We talk about the doctrine of union with Christ a lot from this pulpit, but could you imagine how hopeless the doctrine of union with Christ would be if Jesus were still in the grave? Let, let me just tell you what that doctrine would be saying. It would say, in the doctrine of union with Christ, the Holy Spirit mysteriously unites you to a man who dies for sin. Like, do I really need that? <laughs> do, do I need to be united to a man who dies in penalty for sin? Won't I do that all on my own when I die? But the resurrection, the resurrection makes union with Christ a beautiful doctrine because it says the Spirit of God has united you to Christ such that His righteous life becomes your righteous life. And in His death, you die for your sins. And in His burial, you are buried in the grave with all of your sins. But in His resurrection, you are resurrected with Him, leaving behind your sin and condemnation thereof to rot six feet under. This is why the doctrine of union with Christ is so often described in the New Testament with resurrection language. We just read it in our assurance of pardon this morning. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The resurrection is what makes our union with Christ actual good news. And fifth and finally, the resurrection and the resurrection. That is, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of everyone else. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus has with Martha back in John chapter 11? Lazarus has died, and Jesus says to Mar Martha to comfort her, you know, Lazarus is going to live again. She says, yeah, Jesus, I know. He's going to be resurrected on the last day when everyone else is resurrected. That doesn't do much good for me right now. Do you remember what Jesus says to her in response? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. This is why Jesus is described by Paul as the firstborn from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Jesus Christ blazes a trail out of the grave. Real, physical resurrection of all people is what he guarantees with his own real, physical resurrection. And maybe you've never thought about this before as you've walked through a cemetery. Maybe, maybe you have never actually walked through a cemetery with your eyes fully opened. You may think that you see a sad stretch of land with moss-grown stone, wearing faded inscriptions on top of decomposing organic matter some six feet below the surface, but that's not what you're actually looking at. That's not what you're actually looking at. Do you, do you want to know what you're actually looking at? You're looking at a garden. Those aren't merely rotting corpses below your feet. Those are seeds that one day will sprout all at once. The ground will rupture and the harvest will yield its produce all in one moment. Some will be resurrected for eternal life and some will be resurrected for eternal judgment, what John calls the second death in, the in, the, in his revelation. But you can be sure of this. No person who is buried will stay that way. Did you know that? There is not a human being on the planet who has been buried that will stay that way forever. And this has tremendous implications 
for how we face illness and suffering and especially death. It has massive implications for the way that we as Christians view death, both our own death and the death of others, especially our Christian brothers and sisters who die. John Chrysostom, the ancient church father, says it brilliantly. He says, amazing, how great is the power of the crucified one. He hath persuaded those who are perishing and wasting that death is not death. Therefore, do not act as perishing men, but as men who send the dead before them to a distant and better dwelling place. That's what we do at Christian funerals. Did you know that? We're sending the dead before us to a better dwelling place. He goes on. He hath persuaded them that this corruptible and earthly body shall put on a garment more glorious than silk or cloth of gold, the garment of immortality. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. Therefore, they are not very anxious about their burial, but deem a virtuous life to be an admirable dress. That's how we process the death of our Christian brothers and sisters. Now, my charge, my pastoral charge in light of all of this is none other than John's charge. It's very simple. Look at verse 30 with me. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's my charge. My charge is John's charge to both the Christian and the non-Christian. Christian, believe it. Believe all of this. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe that in him you have life. Believe that in his resurrection you have been redeemed. You no longer belong to the domain of darkness. And the clutches of death and sin have been pried open. And listen, though you see this only now in part, believe that in the resurrection of Jesus, this redemption actually is yours. It is guaranteed. Believe that in the resurrection of Jesus, the Father looks at you and calls you justified. Believe that through the resurrection of Jesus, you have peace with God and reconciliation in full. Believe that your belief in all of this is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work to regenerate you and unite you to Jesus. And believe that you have been united to him in his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Believe in the hope of your resurrection. What you experience now will not be forever. You will have flesh that is impervious to the sin that clings to your flesh now. You will have desires that are only always bent toward Jesus, your true fount of joy. You will have lips uniquely fitted for praising Christ. You will have eyes uniquely fitted for beholding the beauty of the Lord. And non-Christian, my charge is very much the same. Believe this. Believe all of this and be not deceived. If you are not united to Christ by faith, you have none of these promises and have no reason to sit relaxed in your chair. You have no reason to be at ease. You are hopelessly stuck in the clutches of death. And you are guilty in the sight of God. 
He doesn't wink at your sin. He calls you guilty. Your future, you stand alone, naked and unprotected from the white hot wrath of God. Your future is a resurrection with the body uniquely fitted for eternal death and condemnation. But listen, Christ is offered to you now. Truly offered to you. Every single one of the promises that I have been reveling in for the past 10 minutes in front of you are truly offered to you now. You can have every single one of them. Once you believe in him, once you throw yourself on him in faith. Now, as we conclude with communion, this meal here, I want to take just a few more minutes to remind you what it is we're doing. This meal, this meal is not merely a memorial of Jesus' death. It is at least that, but it's more than that. This meal, what it signifies is fellowship and peace with one another and with God. And the peace that Jesus offers through his life, death, and resurrection isn't simply the idea of peace. It's actual peace. And we enjoy it with this meal. But it also testifies of what is to come. Listen, there is a tremendous amount of intimacy that we can experience right now with God, communion with God that's facilitated by the Holy Spirit right now in this life. But one day, the down payment of the resurrection life that we enjoy now spiritually and emotionally will be enjoined and completed with its glorified physical dimension. Our resurrection life has a bodily component that we are still waiting on. The resurrection life that we know now in part will be experienced in full with resurrected bodies fit for such ecstasy. Your bodies couldn't handle that much joy right now. And all of the moments of sweet communion with Christ that we have experienced in this fallen world will be transported to a new and physical dimension where you once loved him without seeing him, like Peter said, you will see him. That love that you had for him without seeing him will merge with faith retiring sight. <laughs> we won't need to live by faith anymore. We'll live by sight. We'll actually see him. You will stand before Jesus and you will see him and you will see his glorified flesh and he will see yours and you will feel Absolutely no shame. No shame. You will hug him and you will feel infinite power and fleshed in the arms of Jesus embracing you with divine love. Your eyes will well with tears of joy and gratitude and relief and he will tenderly reach a hand across and wipe your cheek. You will open your mouth and choke out a thank you. And he will reply, come, sit down. This seat is yours. Let's eat. That's the meal that this meal points to. That's the meal that this meal testifies to. Now, because of all of this, if you're not a Christian, don't take this meal. You have no reason of clinging to any of those promises that I've just described if you haven't clung to Jesus by faith. So we don't invite you to enjoy this meal, not because we're trying to be mean, but because you can't. You may eat bread and juice, but you're not sharing in this meal 
until you've received Jesus by faith, but we want you to. We so want to enjoy this meal with you. So that's the invitation to receive Jesus. Let, this, let our enjoyment of this meal entice you to do that. And just know, just know, as you've been sitting there listening to the sermon, and as you watch us proclaim the gospel physically with communion, just know you can get in on all of this. You can have it. You can get in on any of this. And if you have any questions about what it means to receive Jesus by faith, ask anyone who takes this meal. By taking this meal, they are saying to you, I would love to introduce you to my friend Jesus. I'm going to pray and ask that the believers in the room come down to my left. You'll take from the bread and the cup, and you'll return over to my right to your seat that way. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit take these words, these feeble words, and apply them in power. Take these five loaves and two fish and multiply them. Father, please grant us the grace of celebrating the salvation of sinners. Grant us the grace of celebrating the sanctification of your saints through this preached word. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.